There is an entire industry of experts who go around making millions of dollars off of these books. And I think it would do well for the consumer to remember that in many cases, there are authors who don't really even pay attention to what's being written in the books under their own byline. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, March 29th, and today Dylan Byers is here to talk about NBC Universal making two of their franchise news shows, Morning Joe and Squawk Box, available on Peacock, and what it says about their streaming ambitions. And we talk about the evolving plagiarism scandal involving a CBS News contributor and the ghostwriter on several of his books, and what it says about TV news celebrities trying to make a quick buck off of publishing. And later, Julia Yaffe and Ben Landy discuss how Washington is quietly repositioning itself on support for Ukraine. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Happy hump day. I'm joined today by Dylan Byers to talk about the media. That's what you do, Dylan, isn't it? <laughs> That's what I try to do. <laughs> um, I want to start with NBC. Um, and I'm going to ask you to sort of explain some distinctions between the various uh, streaming platforms and options that NBC is offering. But NBC Universal is going to start streaming Morning Joe and Squawk Box on Peacock. What makes this move distinctive to you? I mean, like NBC can put any old news show they want on, on Peacock or NBC News Now, but why are you? Why is your interest peaked by these two shows in particular? I, I would say perhaps the elephant in the room for the last three or four years that I've been covering media has been how is the news industry going to make this jump to to streaming? Obviously, it happened with entertainment programming, the transition for sports and for news is much harder because you you effectively have all of the incredible carriage fees that you get through the linear business. And that prohibits you as a media company from moving the best sports and the best news that you have over onto your streaming, even as you're trying to grow your streaming networks. CNN Plus, RIP, rest in peace, was ill-fated, probably didn't have the the best programming on earth, but it was at least an effort to sort of, you know, uh, skate to where the puck is going to be and say, it is only a matter of time before the news is going to be consumed, not on linear television, but on streaming. And we need to build the infrastructure for when that time comes. But all of the things that we associate with that we would kind of say are like the best of what television news has to offer, that is the most popular shows, the sort of core programming on the news networks, is something that media companies have been very reticent about moving to streaming because once you do that, you begin to risk these lucrative fees that you have with cable providers. And so we are inevitably going to arrive at a time when the shows that very small amount of us still watch on linear television are going to move over to streaming. But it has taken these media companies far too long, in my mind, to make that pivot. And so to see shows like Morning Joe, Squawk Box, which really are key pillars of the MSNBC and CNBC businesses, respectively, to see 
NBC Universal finally say, okay, we're ready to take that jump. We're ready to up the ante in terms of what we're investing, in terms of how we are thinking strategically about moving news to streaming, I think represents a sort of notable and, and I would say admirable move finally to be doing this because everyone has been dragging their feet around this. And now, if you're somebody who likes Andrew Ross Sorkin and the Squawk Box crew and you like Joe Scarborough and the Morning Joe crew and that's sort of how you get your news and you don't really consume news on television throughout the rest of the day, all of a sudden Peacock, which is one of the, I think, weakest streaming op services out there in terms of your options for what you have in terms of, in terms of entertainment programming, all of a sudden as a news consumer, this becomes a lot more appealing because it can basically become the home along with the Today Show, which is already there for your morning routine. So I, I actually find it to be a very savvy move on their part. So are, will these shows be live or you can only stream them after they've No, been? no, no, live now, which is, the, which is the key difference here. And And yes, for a long time, media companies have been fine to sort of say, oh yeah, you can get this on streaming, but it's sort of after the fact. And of course, in news, as in sports, like a car, the value of the thing depreciates significantly once you lose that live factor. So no, this will be live. And I think that that makes it all the more significant. Why isn't this on NBC News now? And is the idea around NBC News now kind of like CBSN or maybe what's what CNN Plus was supposed to be, which is its own content that exists kind of in parallel to the stuff that's on NBC. Everyone has a right to be confused by what's going on in streaming right now. And certainly with all of the various brands and all of the various ideas that are being thrown against the wall when it comes to streaming. If you sort of strip away all the nonsense, yes, there's Peacock, there's NBC News Now, there's this sort of Today Show mini empire, what goes where and why. At the end of the day, there are a lot of bets being placed, but you would do well to sort of follow the big brands that are sort of known quantities. And NBC News Now is sort of, it, it is essentially a pitch to the consumer that if you like that sort of cable news on in the background or available when you need it, we will give that to you with this. But when you're talking about shows that are sort of their own distinct entities that have loyal followings like you're talking about a Squawk Box or a Morning Joe or certainly a Today Show, those are going over to Peacock or will live simultaneously on Peacock. And at some point, inevitably, even though NBC Universal has managed to sort of let three distinct news networks in NBC, MSNBC, and CNBC sort of coexist at times, even against their own best interests, inevitably we will arrive at a point where this all becomes much easier for the consumer. But I think what's notable here in terms of throwing all these things against the wall is that the way NBC sees it, they do believe in the power of these distinct brands. And they invest in things like Today's Show and Morning Joe and Squawk Box as distinct brands rather than some sort of holistic overarching strategy that would encompass all of NBC News. I want to talk to you, Dylan, also um, about another story before you go today, which is kind of going under the radar a little bit. But I think it's an important one because a lot of the media personalities we frequently talk about, you and I, the TV news anchors and correspondents, they publish books and those books become bestsellers. And we see them, you know, in the airport bookstores all the time. Frequently, a lot of those books are written by ghostwriters. And there's a sort of budding scandal coming out of Los Angeles, actually, a... Um, U.S. University of Southern California oncologist 
David Agus, but he's also a TV news doctor, one of these TV news doctors. He's a CBS News contributor, I believe. He has a book that already came out. It's a bestseller, The Book of Animal Secrets. A lot of it's plagiarized. And the LA Times and some other media outlets have gone through his previous books and found tons of language that appears to be plagiarized. But it's going back, not necessarily to David Agus, it's going back to his ghostwriter and the sort of consultancy of ghostwriters. Is that right? That's right. And this is this is actually, it, it is a story that's sort of getting lost, um, does not rise to A1. But kudos to the Los Angeles Times for exposing all of these instances instances of plagiarism in his books. I think now the count is at like something like 120 instances of plagiarism. And yes, it is all falling back on the ghostwriter, who, by the way, is the ghostwriter for many other notable authors who have sort of built their careers on these books that ostensibly convey their sort of medical expertise. And so I think you have a lot of these authors, Sanjay Gupta, uh, who's on CNN, of course, is another one who uses this ghostwriter. And I think they're all sort of sweating. And I think what's so interesting here is, one, I don't think the vast majority of people who buy these books understand that they are oftentimes not written by the person whose name is on the front of the book, but by a ghostwriter. I think to the extent that this shines a light on that, it's significant because these authors, uh, these so-called experts, they build careers and fortunes off of these books, which very oftentimes aren't written by them. And so, no, the plagiarism in this case is not necessarily David Agus's fault. It's the fault of the ghostwriter, sure. But he comes out with this statement and says, I am grateful that my collaborator has confirmed that I did not contribute to nor was I aware of any of the plagiarized or non-attributed passages in my books. So distancing himself from any responsibility for this. And fine, but in a way it is, it is an even worse indictment than the plagiarism indictment because it, it highlights the fact that this guy who is building his career off of selling you on this idea of his expertise actually isn't not only is he not writing the words that you're reading but he he doesn't even bother to be to be sort of rigorous or responsible enough to concern himself with what's actually being written in these books and there is an entire industry of experts who have television contracts who go around making millions of dollars off of these books and i think it would do well for the consumer to remember that in many cases there are authors who don't really even pay attention to what's being written in the books under their own byline. And I think that's why I find this case so significant because it is not just a case about one instance or two instances or 10 instances of plagiarism. It is telling the consumer something far more important, which is that many of these books that you think are written by these experts are indeed not written by these experts. I'm, I'm glad you brought this story up too because it's always graded on me. The idea of a ghostwriter is always graded on me especially when the writing is coming from journalists. And like you and I, like I, I haven't written a book, but I've written very long things and toiled over things. And like any writer or journalist, like put a lot of effort and sweat and stress and anxiety into writing. And then you see some like 
big name TV news journalist, maybe like have a book that's ghost written. It just feels like cheating to me, you know, like do the work, man. This shit is hard. And like, there are some cases of, I'm, I'm like looking at my bookshelf right now. There are some cases where a ghostwriter is useful. There was a book that came out a few years ago that I really liked called American Radical. And it was basically about a Muslim American undercover FBI agent. And he has a co-author, maybe not so much a ghostwriter, but you know, not everyone is a great writer, but they have a story to tell. And so you need someone to like kind of help your hold your hand a little and guide you through writing. And maybe this undercover FBI agent, you know, didn't necessarily go to journalism school. So maybe he needs some help. But, you know, I and I have friends who have published books. It's a lot of work and it just feels like almost just like a money mill scam just to keep publishing and publishing these books. Like the Fox News hosts who like have a book at the top of the New York Times bestseller list. It's a, a shelf at Barnes and Noble every time you go in there for people who still go into bookstores. All those things are written by ghostwriters. Like the, all those killing Jesus, killing patent books that Bill O'Reilly wrote, ghostwriters. And the other thing, Dylan, just to end my rant, it used to be that the ghostwriter, like their name would be on the cover. You know, it'd be like so-and-so with Joe Schmo ghostwriter. That stuff is now kind of like hidden in the book now. So it's like even more hidden that the writer has leveraged a ghostwriter to produce this work. I think it says something about celebrity and what we expect from our celebrities. Take your five, 10 favorite athletes, public figures. Writing is actually hard. And just because someone is good at, at tennis or, or is it, you know, a good, you know, <laughs> good on stage or good in the cinema, does not make them a good writer and they don't need to be. And we shouldn't pretend that they are. But part of the way that you build up celebrity, part of the way that you create this sort of aura around the people we trust as our sort of public figures and the people we, we are willing to take life advice or medical advice or any sort of advice from is by sort of infusing them with this sort of like singular quality uh, that they're capable of sort of like doing everything. And, and it, we don't need it to be that way. It would be enough for them to be experts in their field and then have other writers come in and get a little bit of credit for what they do. But something about the process and something about how you sell books is that you, the ghostwriter, is very much a ghost. That doesn't work. And we're seeing the way that that doesn't work because when it comes time to bear responsibility for mistakes, clearly need to have somebody to pin that on. But whether or not David Agus's employer, USC, or CBS News, which has him on contract, do they care that, you know, he didn't even bother to have the sort of academic rigor to read through the, you know, a draft of this book and, and sort of see that like maybe some of these things were being cribbed from basic healthcare websites? I mean, I don't know. And I don't know if this puts a black mark on his career. And I don't know if it should. Uh, but but it, it seems like a worthy debate to have. And it seems like if he's going to make millions and build his life off of selling these books, and if Sanjay Gupta is going to do the same and others are going to do the same, that at least there should be a conversation about what they're responsible for. All right, Dylan. Thanks so much. All right, man. Cheers. When we come back, Julia Yaffe is here to talk about whether Washington is changing its tune about supporting Ukraine. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy, talking to the one and only Julia Yaffe. Hey there. Glad to have you on the program. Hi. Julia, you and I were talking offline the other day about how the Biden administration has a very different public 
posture on the war in Ukraine from where it's all defiance and optimism and this steadfast commitment to victory at all costs. And then increasingly, it sounds like there's a very different sort of private sentiment behind closed doors. I know you've been taking a lot of meetings with sources. You've been talking to a lot of folks the last few weeks. Can you talk a little bit about what people in Washington are saying to each other versus what they are saying right now in the press? Well, for a while, there was frustration among people in the foreign policy national security community here in Washington. Uh, those of us who are, you know, who follow Ukraine, who are Europeanists or transatlanticists, that the Biden administration didn't really have a clear strategy on Ukraine, that it was not clear what winning looked like. It was not clear what the game plan was. And recently, it seems like, I would say in the last couple of weeks, something resembling a policy or a clearer set of policy objectives have gelled. And that is that basically Ukraine has a window of opportunity, including the spring, the upcoming spring offensive, when most likely the Ukrainian army is going to push southeast and uh, toward Militopol and toward the Azov Sea and try to cut the Russian land bridge to Crimea. And then after that, depending on how the spring offensive goes, there will be a reassessment of levels of aid, of how much the Biden administration is going to ask Congress for when they go to them in the fall, when budget talks start. And what's kind of alarming to some people who are more hawkish on Ukraine or more worried that freezing this conflict would just mean kicking the can down the road and getting a bigger, more horrible war like a decade or so later, um, is that the sense I'm getting is that if the Ukrainians don't do well in the spring offensive, then the reassessment is going to look like, all right, let's start talking about talking about finding some kind of negotiated ceasefire, some negotiated settlement, because we can't just support a stalemate indefinitely. And it's kind of buttressed by some of the reporting coming out of Russia. There was a Guardian report that quoted Dmitry Peskov, who is the spokesman for Vladimir Putin. He was at a like a apartment party. And he basically said, you know, everybody was toasting for peace and an end to the war. And he got up and said, look, guys, this is going to go on for a very, very long time. Things are only going to get worse and going to get harder. So essentially buckle up and get ready. And it kind of comports with a lot of what we've been hearing out of Moscow, which is that Putin, like he has not communicated his own war aims to his elites or to his public. And that increasingly this looks like he just wants a forever war with the West because in some ways it justifies his staying in power and holding on to power forever. Do you think that that Putin's silence on that topic sort of gives him a, an informational or, or political advantage versus Washington where, you know, obviously, as we've been discussing, politicians aren't admitting this openly, that there is sort of an internal countdown for how much time Ukraine has to make major advances and increase its leverage at the bargaining table. Putin seems like he's not giving away any part of the game whatsoever. Well, the thing is, he doesn't have to, right? Unlike 
the Biden administration, unlike Emmanuel Macron or Rishi Sunak uh, or Olaf Scholz, he doesn't have to answer to anybody. That's one thing. And second of all, that's just that's always been Putin's style to keep things vague, keep things fuzzy, to allow himself maximum room to maneuver and maintain the maximum number of options. And we saw that in the lead up to the war itself, where he was kind of publicly all over the place in what he was going to do. And sometimes he won't have decided himself, but it does definitely give him room to maneuver politically, which he has plenty of anyway. It sounds like there's also an element of gamesmanship and expectations management that Washington is doing here, where the Biden administration is basically saying, Ukraine needs to do as much as possible through the summer, because after that point, we need to recess, as you said. Um, Of course, the Ukrainians are already doing like just about everything they can do to win. I mean, the, the stakes are literally existential for them already. But it sounds like Washington is trying to set this expectation that actually Ukraine's Western partners and allies are operating on a different timeline. They have domestic pressures. The Biden administration is not going to be around forever. Public support is not going to favor these military expenditures forever. And they need to see more progress on an expedited timeline. Yeah, and we have elections coming up. The question of how substantial the Ukraine fatigue factor will be in them is probably one that the Biden administration wants to minimize. From what I hear People in Congress are getting more and more questions from their constituents about why we're spending so much money abroad on another country, because most people don't have a personal connection to this. Europeans feel closer to it and more committed to it, but they just have less stuff. And this is the other thing I hear coming out of the White House, which is, look, we'd love to keep supporting you, but we're running out of stuff. And I hear this from people in the Pentagon, too, is that uncertain types of ammunition, for example, like 155 millimeter shells, we're basically out in the sense that we've reached the lower threshold of where military planners in the Pentagon are comfortable with the U.S. stockpile being for them to feel that the U.S. is secure and that other contingency plans aren't jeopardized. The U.S. has been scouring the globe for other kinds of um, to procure other types of, you know, either substitutions or those same shells or weapons that have been sold off to other countries to get them back and to send them to Ukraine. But we're starting on certain things, starting to scrape the bottom of the barrel. We're ramping up production. Europe is far behind us. They've only now started issuing these long term contracts. But that takes a while. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up because I was going to ask you, the New York Times actually had a piece just last week saying essentially what you just said, that the Pentagon is struggling with their production capacity because of all the military equipment that's being shipped to Ukraine. And and it was sort of evidencing this growing sense of frustration that arms manufacturers aren't ramping up production. I also got the sense that this was sort of a um, PR operation on on some level, that this was sort of an effort from these various Pentagon sources to name and shame the military industrial complex for considering their own profits over the production levels that the United States government actually needs from them to fulfill the sort of quotas they're going to be um, burning through if this war continues. Look, it's a complicated issue because we are not Russia. We can't just go and commandeer a Lockheed factory and just say, you know, or grab the Lockheed CEO by the throat and say, you're going to make this many javelins or else. We live in a free market economy. 
And to ramp up production, they need to put it, I mean, the capital outlays are intense, right? You have to find and train new workers. You have to build new factory space. You need components. There are things like a gunpowder shortage. Didn't know that until reporting this story. On the other hand, I've also heard from people that we're actually doing okay, that we've ramped up production for many things, including ammunition. And I've also heard Pentagon people pointing the finger at Congress instead. They're saying like, look, military industrial complex here will make it. If you have the money to pay for it, they will make it. But is Congress going to give us the money? Yeah, it doesn't seem hard to imagine that we've already seen the last giant Ukraine military aid package to come out of Congress, maybe the second to last. But no doubt Putin's having the same thought. Zelensky's worrying about the same thing, that the the political winds won't continue to blow in this direction forever. And uh, it definitely sounds like they're starting to peter out. Yeah, I mean, we don't know. Um, Again, I think a lot depends on the spring offensive and everybody in Washington is just kind of, well, in this in this segment of Washington is kind of in a kind of holding their breath because if the offensive is successful, it might be much easier for the Biden administration to go to Congress and say, let's help us help them because it's it's just always easier to back a winner. But again, that window might close, especially as we get closer to the election. And then if there's, you know, a President Ron DeSantis or a President Trump, then Ukraine is just straight up fucked. Well, Julia, on that dismal note, thanks as always for stopping by. <laughs> we love to have you. Thanks, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.